Please join me in reading uh, our scripture today. It's Mark 11, 12 through 25, or excuse me, yeah, 12 through 25. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. <clears throat> Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not a season for figs. <clears throat> he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. <clears throat> Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you, granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is just such a privilege that we can join together today to worship you, to praise you, to come before you with uh, our prayers and supplications. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to wade through money changers or, or try to get close to the temple to be in your house, but you've made it possible that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are with us. And Lord, we just thank you that uh, even here electronically, we can gather together uh, to praise and worship you. Lord, I pray that our uh, prayers would be from a heart of uh, humbleness, Lord, that we would have forgiven others uh, before we come to you and uh, seek your will. And Lord, that our, our prayers would be in line with your will and the things that uh, you desire for us. I pray that you would bless John as he teaches and expounds on this scripture this morning. Let us have open, receptive hearts and minds uh, to go from this and uh, to better be able to bear fruit. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time together. Bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, before we turn to our text, 
I would like to uh, share some good news. We do have a date when we plan to reassemble, which is going to be Sunday, June 7th for our first time to regather. Uh, following the protocols released by the Texas Department of Health and Human Services on the 5th and then updated on the 18th, we will try to minimize social contact, maintain social distancing, we're going to request that those who are symptomatic in any way, uh, fever, cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, please do not come on that day. Uh, we still continue to recommend that those who are in high-risk categories remain at home, uh, at least until it's been given a longer, lengthier, safer season in which to regather. And for those who do come, to please bring masks and be prepared to uh, as eager as we're going to be to greet one another, hug one another, shake hands, uh, to respect the distancing as our governing officials have recommended. And then we will be taking special cautions to keep everything sanitized and clean. Uh, we will also be having services for our children, although some of the distancing and the ratios will change. So Katie Harbour, our children's coordinator, currently has that we will have two volunteers working with six toddlers two for eight preschoolers, and two for eight elementary schools. No snacks or drinks will be served. And again, extra caution will be taken regarding sanitation. And we won't be trying to mask young kids, but we will be doing our best to keep them uh, at appropriate distances. So we're very excited to finally be able to regather on Sunday, June 7th, and hope that every Sunday seems a little bit more normal from what we've been enjoying. Uh, also, we will be having our first Thursday gathering on June the 11th. So typically we meet at six o'clock for a fellowship meal followed by a teaching time. We will not be having a fellowship meal for that first Thursday the 11th, but we do hope on the 18th to be able to have a prepared meal in the kitchen. So rather than a potluck where people are uh, putting the same hands in the same dishes, we will be preparing something hopefully to be able to serve, but have some form of fellowship while still observing every precaution recommended during the time that the virus is still active and uh, spreading. So on the 7th, we will meet on Sunday. On the 11th, we will meet on Thursday. More details to follow, but please do put that on your calendar. Would you now join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to open God's word? Father, we do thank you for uh, another Sunday to gather. We thank you for another day of life. We thank you for all that we've enjoyed but taken for granted that the atmosphere continues to keep us blanketed, that we kept breathing through the night, that we woke up with clothes to put on, with water to turn the tap on, with food to eat, with family to greet, and for the opportunity to assemble even in this fashion. And so, Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the family of God and for the opportunity to love one another, even at a distance, to pray for one another until we can regather. And we do continue to pray for our community our country, this globe, for your merciful relinquishing of the virus, Lord, for your provision of a vaccine, of a cure, Lord, for wisdom on the part of our governing officials as they make decisions that affect the lives and the health of so many. And Father, would your church shine bright? Would we not be fearful but faithful? Would we not be distant but loving? Would we be exemplars of those who know that this life is not all there is, but that we have a certain home awaiting us someday? And that though we need to be wise and cautious, prudent and loving, that we need not be fearful and we can't be selfish. And so we pray that we represent you well and serve you well. 
even as we pray for your soon lifting of this uh, unusual circumstance that you've providentially allowed. So be with each now as we open your word. Would your spirit who inspired it illumine it, apply it to our minds and hearts and lives, that we might become more like Christ, better able to glorify him, and better able to share him with others. And we'll ask this in his name. Amen. Well, several years ago, a good friend of mine wanted to celebrate his 50th birthday with his son and my son, and he chose as our destination Fulton, Missouri. Now, Fulton is undoubtedly scenic, but the real attraction was the Winston Churchill National Museum. And if you're wondering why there's a Midwestern Museum for Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, it was because there in 1946, he gave his famous Sinews of Peace speech in which he announced that the, an iron curtain had descended upon the continent of Europe. And so there at the local university, they have a museum dedicated to honoring this amazing man who had a remarkable career. Uh, he served in three wars. He was the first uh, secretary of the Admiralty. He was the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the Exchequer. He served in Parliament for more than 60 years. But undoubtedly, the focus of the museum, like the focus of his biographies, is on the five years that he was Prime Minister and led Britain in its darkest hour. When he, with his speeches and his unyielding demeanor, was indomitable and rallied that nation to stand firm against the forces of evil that were raised up against it. So you've undoubtedly heard the message where he said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields, in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And it was this brief portion of his prolific career that receives the disproportionate emphasis of his biographies and museum because it was in those days that he preserved his people from destruction. And in a similar way, as we come now with Jesus to the doorsteps of Jerusalem, we're going to see the gospel account slow, where more than a third of the gospel of Mark, like the other gospels, are going to be dedicated to six days, seven days in our Lord's life, because it was in this small portion of his um, public ministry in Galilee and Judea that he delivered his people from destruction of the forces of evil. And so we're going to see from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to his triumphal resurrection from the grave on Easter Sunday, we're going to see now five chapters, about 38% of the Gospel of Mark dedicated to Christ last week on earth in which he saved us from our sins and redeemed us for his father. Last week, we saw with uh, Dr. Fred leading us with Jesus into Jerusalem as the king came to his people, to his capital city and entered and then briefly inspected the temple. And today we want to journey with Jesus back into Jerusalem on Monday morning as he now gives his expectations of the king and then begins to issue his judgments on the people who did not meet them. So our text today is going to fall into three sections. That King Jesus expects fruit from his subjects. That King Jesus expects fidelity from his subjects. And that King Jesus expects faith 
from his subjects. Now, when I first wrote down my outline, I began revising it thinking, you know, King Jesus sounds odd and the word subjects sounds offensive. But on further reflection, I thought, well, that's exactly why I'm going to leave those two terms in there because we need to remind it that Jesus is indeed king and that we are indeed his subjects and that we are under his authority and therefore accountable to him. And so, for example, we see that Jesus was the king of the Jews. As he entered in Jerusalem, the crowds cried out, according to Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. And other like, unlike most human kings, he wasn't proud but humble, mounted not on a steed or a charger but a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a donkey. So the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Later in Mark, Pilate is going to directly ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, it is as you say. He was indeed the king of the Jews, but not merely king of the Jews, but the king of all peoples, as the book of Revelation makes clear. There, according to the revelation given to the Apostle John, we see that those who wage war against the Lamb will be overcome because he is Lord of lords, Lord over the lords. He is King of kings, King above all kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. The description becomes even more grand and glorious in Revelation 19, where it says, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of all kings and Lord of lords. And so as we envision Jesus, we shouldn't think of him as merely the carpenter's son as the gentle rabbi smiling with his arms around the children. Uh, we certainly shouldn't picture him perpetually in a manger and most definitely not perpetually hanging on a cross. That was who he was in his incarnation, in his humble state, but now he has risen, he has ascended, he is reigning, and he is supreme over every other authority. He is Lord over all lords. He is king over all kings. He is our authority. We are accountable to him. We are his subjects, and so it is wise for us to understand what he expects of us because we will answer to him as judge someday. So with that, we join Jesus, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethany. The next day is Monday, the day after Palm Sunday, which we actually can calculate with some accuracy. Uh, it seems likely that that was March 30th, 33 AD, 
Again, the specific date and the location remind us that these aren't myths and legends. These aren't invented tales of Valhalla and the Norse gods. This took place in time and space, in history, in the midst of humanity, when God became a man and accomplished all of these things in fact. Bethany is a village on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, approximately a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So if you were to leave the Willowwood Church and walk to the Student Union, that would be about the distance from Jerusalem to Bethany. And it would have taken about an hour given the ascent. And Jesus was hungry, which reminds us that he was human, that this glorious king, this promised son of David, who came so triumphantly, was also one who hungered and thirsted and tired. And he could be bruised and beaten and killed. And he sees a fig tree at a distance. Uh, fig tree is the first fruit tree mentioned in the Bible, going back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve tried to use its leaves inadequately. And too far away to see if there was any fruit on it, he goes closer for inspection. And there he finds nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So fig trees are one of the oldest domesticated plants of uh, humanity. And they were certainly prominent in first century ancient Near East. And there are actually two seasons in which a fig tree could bear fruit. The more plentiful and the higher quality fruit was harvested between August and October. But there was in March and April, the beginning of buds on the previous year's leaf and shoots that could actually bear a form of fruit, although less palatable and tasteful than the later more plentiful harvest. And so there was the possibility that there was going to be fruit on these trees, and the promise seemed to be suggested by the leaves. But an interesting fact about the fig tree is that if there were leaves, but no early fruit, then there would be no later fruit that season. So if it was a hypocritical fig tree that had the leaf and the promise of fruit, but actually had no fruit, it would be a fruitless tree which is going to be the point of what is a symbolic action, a parable in action, because the fig tree is often used in the Old Testament as a symbol of Israel. For example, Hosea 9 verse 10 says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig trees in its first season, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. And so we see that Israel was brought out of Egypt through the Exodus, and there in the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers, they were seduced by the Moabites into worshiping their god Baal on Mount Peor, and they fell away from God. They didn't bear fruit for God the way that he intended, because all of the imagery of God transplanting a vine or a fig tree or a plant into the promised land was so that it would bear fruit for him the fruit of righteousness and holiness, the fruit of justice and peace, the fruit of love and mercy, the fruit of righteous deeds that would attract other nations to come to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and embrace him and abandon their false gods. And so the point of the fig tree that Jesus curses, uh, it wasn't that he got hangry. It wasn't that he was that irritable and that short-tempered. He's making a point because this is going to be another Markan sandwich, which we've seen several times in the gospel, uh, the technical term being an intercalation, where Mark begins an event, 
inserts another episode and then concludes the initial event and the intervening episode helps us interpret what takes place on either side. And the intervening event in this instance is going to be the cleansing of the temple. And the point is going to be that Jesus came to Israel, to the capital, to the temple, looking for fruit. That by all appearances, by the celebration of the Passover, by the hundreds of thousands of Jews who had assembled, by the sacrifices of the high priest, appeared that it was fruitful. But in reality, as we're going to see, it wasn't. And there was not righteousness. There was not a zeal for the Lord. There was not a love of God and neighbor. There was not a desire to see the nations come and worship the one true God, but rather a giving up of heaven for earth and a giving up of God for gold and a giving up of pleasing God for pleasing the Roman masters. And Jesus is now foretelling for the disciples what they're about to see when they go into Jerusalem that he came expecting fruit and Israel and its religious leaders were going to be fruitless and so they will be judged. And the point for us is that King Jesus expects fruit from us as well. He makes this quite clear in John chapter 15 where he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Israel the vine did not bear fruit as God had intended. And so Jesus, the true vine, came to bear the fruit that God desired and that we would not. And now those who are clean because of the word of the gospel, who are attached to Christ and abide in him through his life that he places in us, we bear fruit for him. The fruit of a transformed life, of growing in Christ-likeness, of growing in holiness and righteousness, of growing in compassion and mercy, of growing in love for God and others. And that as we become more like Christ, now we begin to bear fruit in whatever roles that God has placed us, using the spiritual gift that the Spirit gives us, sharing the gospel, making disciples. And by these signs of a transformed life, we give indication that we truly are attached to the vine, that we truly are alive in Christ. And as the world sees the transformation occurring in us, and as we go out and let our light shine before men, they see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because it certainly wasn't us that brought about that beautiful fruit. So a few weeks ago, uh, actually it was last weekend, I think, uh, I went and visited the vineyard of Fred up at Valley View. And he was showing me through with great pride his various vines and branches. And as he would go through, he would look at different branches, look at different leaves, look at different stalks, finding out which grape was actually growing, seeing which ones needed to be cut off. 
because the whole purpose of planting a vineyard is for the bearing of fruit. God's purpose of planting the vineyard of Israel, having plucked it from Egypt, planting it in the Holy Land, was that it would bear fruit, but it didn't. And so there was going to be a judgment on Israel, and now there was going to be Christ replacing it as the true vine and forming a new people of God, the church, but with the same intention of bearing fruit for God, that as we are placed in him, become alive in him, he puts his spirit within us, he puts his life within us, and we become more like him, more righteous, more compassionate, more merciful, more holy, more loving, and we go and perform the good deeds that God has before us and bring glory to him and prove to be his disciples. Because the king expects fruit from his people. Our text picks up in verse 15. Jesus and his 12 disciples came to Jerusalem from Bethany and he entered the temple. Now the temple was one of the grand structures of the ancient world. This is actually the third temple. And so the tabernacle gave way to Solomon's temple, which was destroyed because of Israel's sin and was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and then greatly expanded by King Herod and was actually still under construction during the time of Christ. But already by this point, it fell into two main sections. The first was the sanctuary itself, which was 150 yards by 100 yards, containing the Holy of Holies where the priests could enter. The court of um, Israel, where circumcised Jewish males could enter. The court of the women, where Jewish females could enter. And then there was a barrier separating an outer court known as the court of the Gentiles that was 35 acres in area and could accommodate an estimated 70,000 to 75,000 people. And of course, this is the Passover festival where Jews have come from all around the Mediterranean world to celebrate their redemption and to celebrate and commemorate their Redeemer. And on this holy day, in this holy place, Jesus enters with all of these other worshipers to find some very unholy things going on. Namely, there are people buying and selling in the temple. And so part of the Passover celebration was the sacrifice of lambs and goats and the offering of other animals. But these had to be unblemished and pure. And so rather than carrying an animal all the way with you from Rome or wherever you came and risk the chance of it being declared blemished or flawed, you would instead buy an animal that was approved by the priest and therefore could be offered as a sacrifice. All of which was fine and acceptable, but had no place in the temple proper. In fact, some scholars think that up until the time of Caiaphas, the high priest during the time of Jesus, this would have occurred on the Mount of Olives before you entered the city, but they had brought it closer, had brought it inside. And so now amidst the dung and the animals, rather than leaving room for the Gentiles and the others, there is the buying and selling of animals, of course, at a profit. There is also the changing of money, because this was a time when you would have paid the annual temple tax that every Jew, male, 20 years and older, had to pay. But you had to use a particular form of currency known as the Tyrrhenian half shekel, or a silver half shekel from Tyre, because it was pure, and more importantly, it bore no image on it. It did not bear the image of Caesar. So if you had other coinage, you would go to the money changers, and for a three to 8% commission, they would give you the approved coin 
that you could offer for the temple tax. But again, this is occurring not on the outskirts, but there in the courtyard itself. And they turned a place of worship into a place of mercantilism. If you've ever gone to Europe or to any place where they have the grand cathedrals, and you look at these staggering edifices that some of them took centuries to build, and you see the glorious presentation of the stories of the Bible in the stained glass, and you see the carvery, and you see all the wondrous things that at one time were part of the exaltation of worship of God, and now you have to pay significant dollars to get in. And then you pay additional money for your recording of the tour guide. And then there in the foyer are all the uh, postcards they're selling and the books they're selling and the knickknacks and the Jesus junk. And oftentimes what you don't find is a single Bible or a single hymnal. I was in Argentina one time in a place called La Plata, which houses the largest cathedral in South America. And here in this glorious place that at one time was a house of worship, there was no Bible. There was no hymnal. All there were were envelopes in the pure pews for you to make an offering. And as the tour guide walked us around and talked about the cooking classes they had and the yoga classes they had, there were no announcements of Bible studies. There were no announcements of recovery groups. And they had taken a house of worship and turned it into a money-making venture. And Jesus sees this, and he's rightfully upset. In fact, it says that he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling the doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he doesn't just dash in, knock everything down, and then flee. But courageously, clearly, he explains what he's doing. First, he gives a quote from Isaiah 56, that God's temple was to be a house of prayer for all. The prophet Isaiah says, that the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That God didn't just love the Jews. All the way back from the time of Abram, when he called him out of Ur the Chaldees, in his seed, all the nations were to be blessed. And God's vehicle for reaching the nations was going to be Israel because they were going to see the wonder of their law and the purity of their worship and the righteousness of their reign, and people would be drawn to this. And instead, they were turned away and repulsed by the fleshliness and the worldliness of what they had made it into. Solomon, in his prayer of dedication, even prayed, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when the foreigner comes and prays in this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. In the very dedication of the first temple, Solomon knew that God intended this to be a beacon, a magnet to draw the nations to himself. But sadly, as so often happens, other people come and to see what the lives of the people of God look like rather than what they were intended to be. 
and they're turned away and they're repulsed. Jesus gives another indictment from another prophet, Jeremiah, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So Jeremiah stood in the gate of the temple just as Jesus was there in the courtyard of the temple. And like Jeremiah, the word came out, Hear the word of the Lord, all those who enter by the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. Repent, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It was like a mantra that they could go out and commit whatever idolatries, whatever immoralities, whatever infamies that they wanted to, and then somehow go to God's temple and wash it off like entering into a confessional and making a confession to a priest and then going out to indulge with no intent of changing your life. And that was never what God intended to sacrifice to be. That was never what the temple was intended to be. So he goes on to say, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered? as though somehow they could absolve themselves with a superficial, hypocritical repentance and get themselves right with the holy God? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. They took the holy house of God that was to represent his righteous nature, and they turned it into a robber's den into a cave that brigands would gather to count out their loot, into a place that they would kidnap people and bring them in to exploit them, to shake them down. And Jesus, with the righteous indignation words of Jeremiah, says this was not what God intended because God requires, the king expects his people to be faithful, that there would be fidelity among the people of God. And he requires the same thing of us. There are two expressions in the New Testament that we are compared to the temple of God, namely corporately as the church and then individually as believers who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And in both respects, we are called to fidelity, to faithfulness, to honor God as his temples. The first is in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, that is his calling as an apostle, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful for how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What Paul is talking about is when he came and planted the church in Corinth, he laid the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the teaching of the church taught by Apollos and others was the building on that foundation. So he's talking about the purity of the doctrine of the teaching and the preaching of the church of God. And he says in this context, do you not know that you corporately, the church in Corinth or any church, are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
And if any man destroys the temple of God, not talking about suicide, but talking about false teaching in the church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. So the first exhortation we are given that as the church who has dwelling among us, the Holy Spirit, we are to honor God, to be faithful to that calling by teaching the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That there is no one who can merit salvation in and of themselves, but we all stand condemned before the Holy God. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law by living the perfect life that we could never live. And then to die on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for the sins that we committed so that any who repent of their sins and ask Jesus to be their savior and Lord will be forgiven, will be redeemed. And that we receive this salvation as a gift by grace through faith, apart from anything that we add or contribute because we merit nothing but judgment. But God in his gracious love gave his own son to redeem us. And by preaching that clear, true gospel, the only way by which a sinner can receive eternal life, we honor God's temple. And so we as a church must always keep our teaching pristine and not allow ourselves to be tempted or intimidated by the world to, to tamper with it in any way, to tickle people's ears to be cowed into somehow being silent about what God has declared us to pronounce and called us to teach. And so one way that we honor God in our fidelity as the church is in the purity of our teaching. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, though, to talk about individually how we remain faithful as God's temples. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you were not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. Just as the Holy Spirit dwells among the gathered saints in the church, so the Holy Spirit indwells each regenerate born-again believer. And our body was bought with the price of Jesus Christ. He died so that we might live. And now we belong to God by right of redemption. And we are to honor him by keeping our lives pure. In this context, specifically, keeping ourselves sexually pure. But the broader application is that everything we, we do with our body, uh, what we listen to, what we read, what we view, what we indulge in, we want to keep God's temple holy and pure because that's what we've been entrusted with. And the king expects us to honor him with our fidelity, with taking the sacred objects and the temples that he gives us and treating them with the respect, with the respect and the honor that he requires. Thirdly, we're going to see King Jesus expects faith from his subjects. Verse 19 gives us the pattern of Jesus' days in Jerusalem. Namely, in the morning he would go into the city, and when evening came, they would go out of the city back to Bethany, the place where he was staying. Uh, sunset in April in Jerusalem is around 7 p.m., so with an hour's walk, they likely would have departed Jerusalem somewhere around 5. And so Jesus is departing, and then the next morning, Tuesday, 
he passes by, by black by the fig tree that he had cursed and now has been withered from the roots up. This is the only destructive miracle recorded in the Gospels. Everything else, Jesus has been healing and curing and casting out demons, but now he is exercising his prerogative as the king to condemn fruitless Israel. And this is the last miracle of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And a reminder that he who came as savior and healer is also going to return as judge. And he has the right and the authority to pronounce judgment on those who don't meet his righteous expectations and requirements. It happened instantaneously. It happened from the roots up. It happened not just with the, any of the branches, but all the leaves. It's dried and desiccated as a symbol of what he was going to do to Israel who did not bear fruit as God required. And being reminded of this, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And rather than reinforcing the symbolic interpretation of the event, Jesus instead goes on to talk about what made that prayer of his, that curse of his, powerful and effective. Because the apostles needed another lesson in faithful prayer. And so he says to them, have faith in God. Now, these were Jews. They had grown up in the synagogues. They had spent their time with him. They knew that God existed. That's not the faith he's talking about. It's not wondering which God exists. There was only one God for them, and that was Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. But have faith in the power of God to do anything, because with God, nothing is impossible. He goes on now to apply it. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Now, commentators debate as to what mountain Jesus might be talking about. Uh, some think that it was the palace of Herod that was visible from this area as a symbol of his destroying the uh, powers of Rome. Some think he's talking about the Temple Mount, which would have been behind them as a sign of the judgment that was going to come on Israel. Some think he's talking about the Mount of Olives that they were ascending by this point or were on at this point, and that this refers to a prophecy of Zechariah that the Mount was going to split at the time of the judgment. But most likely, it's just a proverb for a mountain moving as a miraculous event that is humanly impossible, but that God can do. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, and this mountain-moving faith is a proverbial expression for this is something only God can do, but God can do it because nothing is impossible with God. And then the application in verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Now, this is a puzzling verse, even a problematic verse for many. It was at least for C.S. Lewis. And because he expresses so bluntly what has frustrated others, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book of his called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And this is an imaginary dialogue between he and a correspondent named Malcolm on a variety of topics, chiefly prayer. Jesus, or C.S. Lewis says, 
the New Testament contains embarrassing promises that what we pray for with faith we shall receive. Mark 11.24 is the most staggering. Whatever we ask for believing, we'll get it. No question of confining it to spiritual gifts, whatever. No question of a merely general faith in God, but a belief that you will get the particular thing you ask for. No question of whether it's really good for you or not. And to heap paradox on paradox, the Greek doesn't say believing you will get it, but it uses the aristolabate, which means you've already got it. How is this astonishing promise to be reconciled? One, with the observed facts, that we don't have mysterious moving mountains, that no one plans a vacation to Mont Blanc and then finds that it's somehow in the Mediterranean Sea. Secondly, how do we reconcile it with the prayer in Gethsemane? Or when Christ prayed, Father, if it be possible, but not my will, but yours. How can the Lord who had perfect faith somehow not get what he desired and deserved? As regards the first issue, Lewis says, no evasion is possible. Every war, every famine, every plague, almost every deathbed is a monument to a petition that was not granted. At this very moment, thousands of people on the island of England are facing as a fait accompli the very thing against which they have prayed night and day, namely the war against uh, Germany, pouring out their whole soul in prayer, and they thought they had faith. They have sought and not found. They knocked and the door did not open. That which they greatly feared came upon them. Now, Lewis is blunt in raising the frustrations and the pain and the puzzlement of those who prayed desperately for something, thought they had faith, but they didn't receive it. And so it's important for us to pause briefly and to realize that this isn't to be a promise jerked out of context, as though God gave us a blank check, put his name on it, and just said, if you can churn up enough emotional belief that somehow you get everything you want, whether or not it's righteous, whether or not it's right, whether or not it's my will, whether or not it goes against another person's prayer with equal faith for something completely different, even assuming that we had the wisdom to know what to pray for. And so I want to talk briefly about at least seven other prerequisites biblically for what goes into God answering a prayer, because this isn't the only text on this subject. First of all, the Bible certainly does teach that faith is an essential element in prayer. For example, in James, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And so God calls us to trust him, to rely on him, to turn to him and to pray. Because God can do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. And if he promises a son to ancient Abram, we shouldn't be like Sarah and laugh in disbelief. But we trust and we pray and we ask because nothing is impossible with God. Secondly, holiness, righteousness, is a biblical prerequisite for prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, says James, referring to Elijah. Um, I talked to someone earlier this morning had been praying for some time, 
regarding a job that he was needing. And he said, uh, sorry you had to pray so long. I'm sure other people could have used your prayers. And I said, I'm just sorry I wasn't more righteous and could have accomplished it more quickly. So we got the job. We're grateful. But the reality is that God hears the hearts of the holy. Psalm 66, 18 says that if I regard unrighteousness in my heart, the Lord does not hear. First Peter 3 says that if husbands do not live with our wives in an understanding way, our prayers can be hindered, which is a terrifying thought. And so there is a level of righteousness that makes our prayers more expeditious, more effective. Thirdly, perseverance. Jesus says, I say to you, ask, which means keep asking and it will be given. Seek, which in the Greek verb form means keep seeking and you will find. Knock or keep knocking and it will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives and he who keeps seeking finds and him who keeps knocking, it will be opened because there's a perseverance to our prayer life that is called upon. And some of you have prayed for years, even decades, for an answered prayer for the salvation of a loved one. And it took that. And so we never give up hope. We always keep asking because while there's life, there's hope. There's a purity of our motives involved. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and didn't receive because you asked with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The God's not a genie to indulge our every fantasy. He wants righteous requests with pure motives that are characteristic of the holy, of those who truly know him and only want his name hallowed. It wouldn't think of asking for something that was dishonoring to God, who only want his kingdom extended. It wouldn't think about trying to build our own, who only want his will done. And so we're happy to submit any request we ask up to his sovereign, all-knowing, all-perfect will. This is related to the next often repeated prerequisite, namely praying in Jesus' name. Uh, I picked one verse in John. I could have picked seven more that says the same thing. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In his name doesn't mean at the end of every prayer we say in Jesus' name, amen, as though that was some magical formula or incantation, but in accordance with Jesus' character. And so in the Bible, the name is the representation of the character of the virtue of someone. And so God's name is God's character. Christ's name is Christ's character. And when we ask him things in accordance with his righteous, holy character, then he's inclined to answer that. But we do always submit our will to God. As Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That qualification isn't a hesitation. It's not a lack of faith. It's a recognition that while we have faith, we can't be presumptuous. And we always seek God's will over our own, knowing that it is wise and good and right. Paul, when he prayed, actually beseeched the Lord three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed from him. God said no, because he knew that Paul needed that to keep him humble. And he needed him humble more than he needed him healthy or pain-free. Because God cares about our holiness more than oftentimes our fleshly, worldly happiness. And so God knew that it was better to keep that in Paul's life. And so he permitted it. He allowed it. Uh, in every major decision that I've made in my life about 
leaving business to pursue ministry, about whether to uh, marry Nock despite her family's opposition, whether to take this job or position or that. I try to bring myself to only wanting God's will. After I've sought counsel, after I've sought scriptural principles, after I've asked what's wise, because wisdom is a biblical category for decision-making, I try to bring myself to the place where I only want what God wants. And then when it's time to make a decision and a path seems clear, I'll pray, Lord, so far as I can tell, this is your will for me. And so I'm going to go down this path. I'm going to open this door. But if I've heard you wrong, if I've misunderstood, then stop me, redirect me, close it. Because ultimately, we should only want God's will. And a final category that we mentioned because Jesus does in this context is forgiveness. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Of course, this is paraphrasing the Sermon on the Mount, and we often pray the Lord's Prayer. And Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so while the call to great faith in prayer is absolutely biblical, it's wrong to take that single verse, 1124, and to use it as somehow a carte blanche right to demand anything of God if we can just simply generate enough emotional fervor to call it faith. There are a number of prerequisites for answered prayer in the Bible, faith being one of them, but not the only one. And at the end of the day, our faith in the ability to, of God to do anything should be accompanied by a faith in the character of God to only do what's right and to yield ourselves to his will, to pursue his glory, to extend his kingdom, and to accomplish what he wants, not what we want. So here in Mark 11, in these three episodes on Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week, we see the expectations of our king, that he expects from his people that there will be fruit that we will be growing in righteousness, that we will be becoming more like Christ, that we will do the good deeds that God created for us beforehand and walk in them so that people will see those good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven and want to come know him as well. God, our King, expects fidelity, that the bodies he gives us will be used for holy purposes, that the church that he has assembled will only be holy and pure in our teaching. And the King expects faith among his people a trust in God that he's able to do anything and a trust in God that he will do the right thing, even if that's sometimes the hard and the uncomfortable thing. As we conclude this uh, truthfully daunting passage, because the idea of standing before God someday and having Jesus as our judge open the books of our life and to reveal not just merely our words and our deeds, but our motives is sombering and is sobering. And if it weren't for the gospel, it would be utterly terrifying because none of us can obey God completely. And so if there is anyone listening in on this Zoom or listening to this recording later, if you have not yet come to the point where you have repented of your wrongdoing, admitting that you're not perfect like the God who made you, but asking the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and giving yourself to him as your Savior and Lord, would you please do that now? because that is our only hope of heaven. That is the good news that the king, the judge, is also the savior who became a man, who lived and died and rose for us, 
and is coming back to receive us to all who know him. And on that front, I'd like to conclude, conclude with Hebrews chapter four, which is a beautiful both exhortation to continued faithfulness, but also an encouragement to find grace, fallen though we are. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience as Israel. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's no cooking the books. <laughs> There's no hiding the sins. There's no deleting internet searches in the eyes of God. All will be uncovered and revealed. All will be exposed and bare with the one with whom we have to do. And that should sober us. That should make it, that should make it our ambition to be pleasing to God because we will all stand before him someday. But note the encouragement that immediately follows. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows how hard it is. He knows how frustrating family can be. He knows how difficult and dangerous this life can be. He knows how intimidating and daunting the world can be. And so he can sympathize with us in all those struggles. But unlike us, he didn't falter and fail. And because he stands at the hand of God, it says, therefore, let us, even us, weak, worldly, fleshly, frail, selfish and self-indulgent though we are, short-sighted and self-serving, even the likes of us are told to draw near with confidence because he won't turn us away. There won't be a reproachful glance. There won't be a stern eye. There won't be a harsh voice. We draw near with confidence to the throne, not of judgment, but of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of enablement, of forgiveness to all who know God, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our King does indeed require fruit, fidelity, faith from us. But he provides those things because Jesus always provides what he requires. And so we go to him for forgiveness when we fail, for strength in our weakness. And by his grace, we grow in these things to his glory so that others will come to embrace him as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this beautiful text. We thank you for recording and reporting this incident, these episodes in the life of our Lord. He could have just snuck into Jerusalem, but he came in boldly as the triumphant king. He could have gone unnoticed, likely, in the temple, but he came overturning tables and driving out the bunny changers to remind people of what that sacred space was to be. And that his final miracle was one of judgment, so that we would be sobered into seeking forgiveness while there's time and not face that, and also be reminded that we will stand before him and to live our lives accordingly. And so, Father, would you please produce much fruit in us 
Would you please grant us the grace to be faithful in all things? And would you increase our faith? Because though we do believe, we are so deep in our unbelief. Help us to grow in these things individually, as families, and as a church family, we ask that we can represent you well in our community and help usher others to the Savior. And we'll ask these things in his name. Amen. Thank you, John. And in response to John's sermon, we're going to be singing, There is a Redeemer. As our concluding word, I'd like to close with Paul's closing to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen 
or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Have a blessed week, Dina.